The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. It's really good to see you this morning. Hey, you know what? Like, this is not how I wanted to see uh, week two uh, of my, my time here at Heritage Christian Fellowship with just some difficult realities in the world around us. But you know what? Here's the thing. Sometimes I have been guilty of preparing for a sermon in my life, and and I sit down, and it's an academic endeavor. It's an intellectual engagement. I open the Word. I study it. I exegete it. I I read commentaries. I come up with a message. I put it on paper, and I preach it to the congregation. And I step off the stage, and, and and I realize that I was utterly unaffected by the text. It tickled my brain. I put together a decent message, hopefully it engaged the congregation, but there's been many times in my life I've stepped off the the stage and I've looked back at the text I preached and I've thought, did that change me? Did that text affect me at all? As I look at our text this week, this is a week in which the text affected me, especially given the circumstances of the world around us. As I opened up the text this week, I read these words that, that Moses penned so many years ago about the origins of life and about the origins of the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Over the lifelessness that was the blob of earth. Over the disorder, over the desolation, over the darkness, over the chaos. Hovering over all of it was creation hope. Do you ever look around the world and just feel like sometimes there's disorder and desolation and darkness? I was reminded this week as I engaged with this passage that hovering over all of it is this God of creation. This passage is filled with hope. I look forward to teaching it this morning. Would you pray for me? Father, I thank you for the men and women who you have gathered this morning at Heritage Christian Fellowship. God, I thank you for what you're doing in our lives. God, I thank you for the days in our life when the sun shines on our face and we sense your nearness and your closeness and your intimacy and when everything seems to go our way. God, I thank you for those days when it's raining outside and there's cloud cover in our soul and it's difficult because you're sovereign over those days also. God, would you lift our eyes this morning? Would you remind us that you are a God who is above all of it? God, you hover over this place with hope today. God, may you draw our eyes to you that we may find hope in you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I grew up in an environment that could be rather chaotic at times. I grew up in a family of six. I'm the youngest of four in the family that I grew up in. And in our family, we just kind of didn't hold back. We were the kind of family that says what's on our mind. And, and kind of the rule that, run our, that ran my family was he who yells the loudest wins or she who has the most anger wins the argument, and that was sort of the tenor that I grew up in. Uh, My earliest memories as a child were sort of filled with chaos. Uh, The six of us slammed into my father's 1977 silver Dodge pickup truck uh, in a bench seat single cab. I was the youngest, so I had to stand up in the back of the bench seat with my sister in front of me, and we were just slammed, and we were going, that's just life. My parents smoking inside with the windows rolled up. That was the 70s, that's just how it was. I remember the, the way in which my parents would resolve conflict, uh, we can just say with passion at times. They loved each other very much, but there were explosive fights, and in our family, like most families in the West, finances were a struggle. My dad was a logger, he was out of town a lot, that disrupted our family chemistry. And I can remember some of those more difficult moments as a child. 
I can remember at eight years old, my dad sitting me down and explaining that my mother was an alcoholic and that she was going to rehab to try to get better. I remember having that same conversation with me when I was 13 when my mom went back to rehab. I remember my dad having a heart attack when I was 13 and the fear that I had that my dad was going to die. I remember as a youngest child the, the chaos and the disorder that my siblings would sometimes introduce into our family. I remember finding out when I was nine years old that I had a brother I never knew about, a half-brother that my father had, um, had had with another woman. I found out about him and I met him on the same day. I remember as a child when my older brother who I grew up with, my full-blooded brother, uh, when I was about nine or ten, when he had his battles with addiction and he went to rehab. I remember when I was about 10 years old and my 17-year-old sister, who was the homecoming queen, a senior in high school, announced to the family she was pregnant. I remember when my other sister, when I was 15, made the same announcement. When I think back to my childhood, so much of it, there was just a mess. It was chaotic. I say all that knowing that I have a family who's probably listening to what I'm saying today, and I say this with love. I'm not trying to throw my family into the bus. This is just the situation of how I grew up. It's just the truth. I'm honored that I'm a part of this family. I've seen God's hand of redemption at work in my family, but the reality is I grew up in a, in a chaotic and, and messy environment, and I'm in a place now in life where I'm seeing how God has begun to redeem this, and he's been redeeming it since the very beginning. What I'm learning now is how, how God can use even that disorder and that dysfunction for his glory. It didn't make sense to me for a lot of years. As I thought back to my childhood, I had seasons where I was a little bit angry about the way things were. But as I think about it today, I realize how much God taught me. He's helping me to understand that he can and does and is using all of that today for my good and for his glory. God transforms the chaos of my past, of our past, and he, he uses it in a way that, that glorifies himself. As a pastor, I spend a lot of time with folks whose lives are in chaos. I sit down in my office a lot of times with folks who are going through difficult times. And I'm realizing that what God allowed me to go through in my formative years and the chaos of yesterday brings order and unity and wisdom to today. And I'm able to speak as a parable of Jesus into the lives of others. I'm reminded that even in the most difficult and dark moments, God is at work as he sovereignly brings about his purposes. I think of our text today. He hovers over darkness with hope. He hovers over darkness with hope. Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2. The only joke I have today is it's on page 1. I used it last week. That's the only joke I'm going to have for the next few weeks. So you better laugh at that. I read it earlier, but I'm going to read it again as we let these words sink into us this morning. The first two verses of Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of water. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. He hovers over darkness with hope. When I read the Gospels, I see Jesus, how he interacts with folks, and I see Jesus bringing hope into often chaotic and dysfunctional situations. In the Gospel of John chapter 8, there's this scene where, where Jesus is at the temple and he's teaching and these Pharisees and these scribes come before him and they have in their arms a woman who's been caught in the very act of adultery. They throw her before Jesus and they're trying to get him. They're trying to trick him. They're trying to get him to, to do something wrong and they ask him, hey, the law says that we should stone this woman for her adultery. What do you say? 
Can you see the chaos of that scene? Here's Jesus sitting down in the temple. He's teaching in a quiet and controlled environment. All of a sudden, the madness of an angry crowd bursts into the scene. They have a woman whose, whose clothes are half on, half off. She's terrified. They throw her at the feet of Jesus. There's anger. There's judgment. There's sin. There's a mob. There's shame. There's yelling. There's conspiracy. And in the midst of all this chaos and all this madness and all this destruction, Jesus stoops down, doesn't get caught up in the moment, he begins to ride in the ground with his finger. He doesn't add to the chaos. He doesn't add to the disorder. He just brings calm. Verse 7, Jesus says, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at him. And once more he bent down and he wrote in the ground. And, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. In just a few moments, this chaotic scene is transformed. And I often imagine the sound of those stones or in those men's hands one by one hitting the ground as they realize they're not without sin. And as the sounds of stones dropping to the ground fills the air, they walk away and pretty soon it's just Jesus and this woman. And Jesus stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No, Lord, no one. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. I just see this is just one of so many pictures of how Jesus does this in the lives of people. From a, from a chaotic, angry crowd to the chaos in a young woman's heart, Jesus brings hope. Now we live in chaotic times. We live in chaotic times. We have this heated election cycle. We've got orders from the governor that are pressing in got pandemics and all of this stuff that just presses in on all of us. And we're journeying through a challenging season. I think I've realized many years ago that the secret of life is to realize that life is filled with this. I think I've come to realize that the secret of life is, is recognizing that life is, is one series of losses after another, one disappointment after another. And when we go through loss and when we experience disappointment, this isn't God assaulting us. This is just the reality of living in a world where we are not yet in glory. And when we begin to understand, okay, this is life. I'm going to experience loss. There's going to be disorder. There's going to be chaos at times. There's going to be difficulty. God is not asleep at the wheel. He is sovereign. He hovers above us with hope. As we continue in Genesis today, let us think again about this, this original audience who would have been in this place of kind of being in disorder and uncertainty. They would have been frightened and unsure. Last week, we established that Moses was the author of the book of Genesis wrote it probably 1,400, 1,300 years before Jesus. This is about the time of, of the Egyptian uh, exodus, and, and the author was writing to, Moses was writing to Israelites. And last week, we tried to put ourselves in the shoes of these, these pe people who would have been the first to hear these words. They were grappling with the big questions of life. God, who are you? God, do you care about what I'm going through? God, can you help? Is there, can you bring something to bear in this moment? As we consider these questions last week of the original audience, we actually even consider these questions ourselves. There's times in our lives we ask the same questions of God. God, do you care? Who are you? Can you help? And as I thought this week uh, about this, this, this audience, this original group of people who would have received these words from Moses, they were, they were on the tail end of 400 years of slavery. I can imagine that their whole identity was wrapped into the reality of being enslaved for centuries. And as they were grappling with the, the horrors of slavery, all of a sudden God hears their cries. He commissions Moses to show up on the scene. Moses and Aaron show up and they're, they're speaking to the Israelites and they say, God heard your cries. He heard your pleas for help. 
And Aaron begins to, to teach and talk about Yahweh, and Moses performs these signs and wonders. The people agree. Moses goes before Pharaoh. He begins to advocate on behalf of the people. And what happens? Pharaoh says, oh, you think it's been hard so far? Try making bricks without straw. It's going to get a whole lot harder. So, they, so Moses shows up. I, I imagine a pastor showing up uh, at a church and saying, hey, it's going to be great. God's going to be working. It's going to be awesome. Uh, trust me. And then the very next week, things get a whole lot more difficult. That's Moses in this scene. Israelites are, what are you doing to us? It hasn't got a whole lot more easy. It's got a whole lot more difficult. And I just imagine all that they were going through and the questions that they would have been asking of God, these, these difficult questions. God, who are we? All we've ever known is slavery, but who are we really? How in the heck did we find ourselves stuck in the deserts of Egypt? God, who are you? And did you really hear our cries? Can we trust this Moses? What are you like? And ultimately, God, the biggest question we ask is, can we trust you? And it was to these wanting ears that Moses writes these words. He addresses all of these questions in the pages of Genesis. And he begins here in the first few words by going back before the beginning to establish the foundation of who he is. We studied these words last week, but if you're going to take notes, I would encourage you to write this down. First thing we see is we see God before the beginning. We see God before the beginning. In the beginning, there was God. And if in the beginning there was God, we have to think about what it means. And this is a hard thing to wrap our finite minds around. What does it mean that there was an infinite God who was before the beginning? With God present at the beginning of time, he also had to be present before the beginning of time. And if God was present before creation, the question we ask, and this is a hard question, is was there ever a beginning to God? When did God begin? Have you ever asked that question? Well, the answer is easy and hard at the same time. God was present before the beginning because God has no beginning. He alone is creator. He's not a creation. He is the eternally existing, transcendent God who was before the beginning. He has always been. As one who has never been created, God has simply always been. He's the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. I read this week that he is the Lord alone. And the Lord alone stands beyond the universe's beginnings and its end. Our God is the sovereign creator who was before the beginning. And as we studied last week, if we peek ahead in chapter 2, Moses gives us the proper name of this God who was before the beginning. His name is Yahweh. Moses says, The Lord God made the earth and the heavens. The Lord God, his name is, is Yahweh, which is connected to this understanding of the word I am. Which reminds us today that God is. He absolutely is. Listen to what I learned this week and what I was reminded of this week as I thought about this transcendent nature of our God. The Lord God. He has never had a beginning. Nobody made God. He simply is. He has always been. He has no beginning. And God will never end. He did not come into being, and he cannot go out of being. God is being. And he's absolute reality. There's no reality before him. There's no reality outside of him. And God is utterly and entirely independent. God depends on nothing. He needed nothing to bring him into being or support him or counsel him or make him what he is. And God is constant. As the world below ebbs and flows, as seasons of sunshine and shadow fall upon us. God is constant. He is the same yesterday, today, forever. He cannot be improved. He is not becoming anything. God is who he is. 
Pastor Jeremy, as we sat and kind of studied this text this week as a staff, he taught me a word. I Maybe I've heard it in the past, but I, I'm not sure if I have. The word is aseity. Have you ever heard of that word? The aseity of God. This is a fancy Latin word, and, and it simply means that God is sufficient in and of himself. He's independent of anything outside of himself. The Bible teaches that God's aseity, God, the Bible teaches us God's aseity by saying that he does not leave anything outside of himself. And yet somehow, so, so God is entirely self-sufficient, self-contained, and yet for some reason being sufficient to himself, God chose to create. He chose to create. He needs nothing He's not a beggar. He's not begging for our attention or our affection. And yet, he made a decision to create with intention and with love. And as we think about gathering as the saints on a Sunday morning, as we think about worshiping him, our worship is tied to this picture of God's sufficiency. We worship God not because he needs our worship. God is not some teenage boy in his room fretting about whether or not the girl notices him. He needs nothing. We worship God because he is entirely and utterly sufficient. And in his perfect sufficiency, he has met all of our needs. Did you know that there's not a single need or want or desire or ache or craving or thirst that you experience that cannot be entirely and perfectly and fully satisfied in him? And we worship God because of his sufficiency. This was the center of the Apostle Paul's teaching when he stood in front of the men of Athens at Aragopas, at Areopagus. He says in Acts 17, verses 24 and 25, as Paul's preaching to these men of Athens, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You and me, whether you realize it or not, we depend utterly on God. He does not depend on us at all. He is not served by human hands. He needs nothing. He is the creator. We are the creation, and we should never, ever get this confused. I read this week that everything that is not God depends entirely and totally on God. So when we worship anything other than God, we're worshiping a secondary thing, something that came into being by the word of God. Everything exists by God and is dependent on God for every single moment. The universe is utterly nothing when compared to God. Think about all the things you love. Think about the, 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 the nighttime sky in the mountains where there's no ambient light and you can see the Milky Way stretched across the sky. Think of, the, think of mountains reflecting on, on, on a mountain lake. Think of the sunset over the ocean. Think of, think of a rainbow uh, as the sun shines through a rain cloud. Think of all the be- Think of looking at your family, looking at your children, looking at your spouse, looking at your loved ones. Think of a, a hot cup of coffee in the morning. All, all of it, all of it is nothing when compared to God. Nothing. Not galaxies, not sunsets, nothing. How blind it is to elevate anything above God who is the only one who was before the beginning. The second thing we see is that God is the beginner of the beginning. God is not only before the beginning. In our text, we see him as the beginner of the beginning. Look at verses 1 and 2, the first part of verse 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. We see God as the beginner of the beginning here. In the very first verse of Scripture, we see everything necessary for creation. We see time, we see energy, and we see matter. In the beginning, time. God created energy. 
The heavens and the earth matter. All that is necessary for creation is present in these first few words of the scriptures. God created something, and he created it out of nothing. That's a supernatural act. Divine energy created something out of nothing. The something came from nothing, and no one contends that. No one, no one can test that, that there was a beginning to everything that we see. Now, many debate of how this something came to be. Moses tells us right here that it was the power of the supernatural God who spoke these things into existence. The New Testament affirms this. In, in, in Hebrews 11.3, the author of Hebrews says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God spoke and creation was. Revelation, as the 24 elders in heaven are worshiping, they say, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created God alone creates in this way the word that we have for create in the Hebrew here in Genesis it is always connected to divine activity only God can create in the way we see creation here in the first few verses of Genesis he is the beginner of the beginning God himself he is the only one who can create creation only God only God can bring something from nothing no other God can claim to be creator and this is an important truth for us today, and it was an important truth back then when Moses would have written these words down for those original hearers. This idea of, of, a, of, a, of one true God, this monotheistic theology of Genesis would have pressed up against and above the, the, the beliefs of the time, especially in, in Egyptian mythology and pagan worship. In their culture, they believed that, that creation was this crazy set of circumstances. I read this week that they, they believed that the creation involved elaborate myths of love affairs and reproduction among gods of warfare marking out the heavens and the earth. The ideas of that time of creation were, were crazy. They involved many gods and they involved warfare and negativity and chance. The truth of creation, however, as revealed in our text and as Nature reveals, stands in stark contrast. Genesis reveals that all of creation was a very intentional and loving act from an infinite God. Creation wasn't random or by chance. It was thoughtful and purposeful, and it was good. And today, as we look at the complexity of the created world, all that we see in the created universe, the laws that govern the universe, all of it point us to this intelligent loving creator God. In other words, God created all things. Or you could say that God created all of the cosmos. When we see the word heaven and earth, that's this, it's, it's this literary device where you take these two opposites and when you pair them up, it's to speak to the totality of the thing. So, so this text is just telling us that everything we see, from the atom to the cosmos to the end of the universe, all of it was created by God. He alone is the beginner of the beginning. Until God spoke, nothing existed. Now there's lots of folks in the world today that debate and argue scientific opposition to the claims of Scripture. So we have to ask that question. Does this hold water? If we take all the information that we know in the world today and, and all the scientific data and we, and we stack it up against what we see here in the pages of Scripture, can I stand up to the scrutiny? Does this account of a loving, intelligent creator who's responsible for all creation, is this believable? Can an objective mind look at all the data that's available and reasonably conclude that God is responsible? Well, the answer to that question is yes. 
and has been, yes, for thousands and thousands of years. The greatest, most brilliant minds of all time have embraced this idea and this image of a, an intelligent creator. Isaac Newton, Blaise Pascal, Albert Einstein, Dr. Wayne Becker. You've probably never heard of Dr. Wayne Becker. In my previous church, there was this, this old, wild-haired, Albert Einstein-looking dude named Wayne Becker. I had no idea who he was. And he kind of struck up a friendship with me when I was a young man. And I was having lunch with him one time, and I found out that he was a retired scientist. He was the dean of the botany department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He, he was this world-class cellular biologist. He actually wrote the most widely distributed college textbook on cellular biology called The World of the Cell. And Wayne loved Jesus and absolutely held to this creation view. And the thing Wayne would say, he said, Paul, science is not an opposition to the claims of Scripture. Science is the gift God has given us that we might see the thing that he has done. It stands up against scrutiny. In the coming weeks, especially next week, as we get into the days of creation, uh, we'll talk more about some of the prevailing orthodox perspectives within Christendom on how we are to think about creation. Pastor Sam at Philippi and I, and maybe some of the other pastors in December, we're going to create a vlog where we're going to talk about some of the perspectives and, and the convictions that exist within the church on how creation came to be. But listen, at the end of the day, God is a creator. We know this to be true. And look with me at, at verse 2. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. As God prepares the beginning, as God prepares to begin the beginning, at some point in this process, the earth was present, but yet it was unformed in some capacity. It was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. This phrase, formless and void, it describes a disordered place that is empty. It's uninhabited. There was material substance, but the substance lacked boundaries. It lacked definition. It was formless and void, lifeless and disordered and desolate, and it was dark. Darkness was over the face of the deep. How ominous. At the beginning of the beginning, the earth was a cacophony of disorder and of formlessness and of lifelessness and of darkness. And yet God hovered over all of it with creation hope. Can you imagine this in your mind, this lump of matter, this lifeless, cold blob, dark and desolate and disordered? If our text ended there today, it would be kind of depressing. But it doesn't end there. Because as we read on, we realize that this is simply the status of the land before God put his gracious hand to the work of preparing it for humankind. The land that we see here in verse 2 of Genesis 1, it's the not yet state of the land. It had not yet been made good by God. Sometimes when you and me, when we look at darkness and disorder and desolation, it's all we can see. We can't see beyond the darkness. But listen, darkness is not dark to God. I can remember when I first became a pastor. I was young. I was 26 years old. I was in my office. I'd been a pastor for three weeks or four weeks. I was in my office. I was hanging up stuff in my office. So stoked to have an office. I, had a, I was a youth pastor, so I had a gross flea-infested couch, the whole thing. But I was so excited, and my boss walks into my office one day. It was actually on August 3rd. And he says to me, hey, a uh, young man uh, from our church ran over a guy last night and killed him. And uh, he was drunk when he did it. And he's in jail, and you need to go visit him. And I was like, wait, what? Like, I'm, I became a youth pastor because I want to, like, have chubby bunny contests and uh, I wanna, pies to the face. You know, how many guys can we fit in my car? Like, I don't, go, I don't do the jail visit thing, bro. And my boss was like, you got no choice. This kid's 17. He's in your youth group. You got to go talk to him. He just killed someone last night. I was terrified. I knew this kid. He'd been baptized the week previous. 
I went down to the jail cell, showed them my credit card or my, my credentials. They let me in. I uh, got to meet one-on-one with this, this baby in an orange jumpsuit. And uh, I was terrified. I had no idea what the heck I was doing. I was so over my head, so overwhelmed. I was pathetic and scared and afraid. And this kid's just sitting there trembling. This whole world has just been destroyed. He tells me this horrific story of having a few too many with his high school friends, hopping in a truck and driving down the main bag in Wapaka, Wisconsin. Crashes his car into a telephone hole, goes back and sees the mangled body of the man he just killed. He takes off running. When the cops get there, he's not there. They find him later on at a lake with rocks in his pockets trying to drown himself. Couldn't believe what he'd just done. And here I am, a 26-year-old youth pastor with zero experience, sitting in a jail cell with this kid in the the Wapaka County Jail, and I have no idea what I'm supposed to say or do. It was, all I could see was darkness. All, All Andy could see was darkness. And somehow in the midst of all that, this kind of Christian cliche came to mind, but it was the truth. I don't remember exactly what I said, but essentially what I said is, Andy, this is dark, but dark is not dark to God. God will use this somehow, some way for his glory. He is sovereign over even this. You have to trust him with this, Andy. You have to trust him with this. And over the next few months, as Andy got sentenced to prison, I got to visit him, got to know him. And bit by bit, day by day, the the darkness began to clear. And eventually Andy was able to see that there was light and paid his debt to society. And the first wedding I ever officiated was him and his wife. They now have a beautiful family. He's put his life back together. But that day, I'll never forget that day. I like to imagine God hovering over that jail cell like we read in our text today with hope. It was dark. It was desolate. It was disordered in that jail cell. But God was present. And at least I knew enough in that moment to simply tell Andy, look up, bro. Look up. Just like God hovered over the disorder and the desolation and the darkness at the beginning of time. We can imagine that today. No matter where we are, no matter how dark it may be or disordered or how desolate the landscape might be in our life, God hovers over darkness with hope. Write that down, please. God hovers over darkness with hope. Things are not yet as they ought to be. I get it. But soon, in the Genesis account, they will be. We know what happens later on in Genesis when sin rips it all apart. But as Christians, we live in this already not yet place where we know one day for all of eternity and infinitely God is going to make all things good for all of eternity. And darkness will be no more. So God was before the beginning. God is the beginner of the beginning. Lastly, write this down. The third thing we see in our text today is God. We see him beginning the beginning. We see God beginning the beginning. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, hovering over the disordered and lifelessness of the dark world was God himself. Though we have yet to read what action God will take, we just get this picture of him hovering. And if the text ended there, you get this sense of hope. He's hovering over the darkness. There's something, he's going to do something. There's some expectation. This word hovered carries with it these, these unique images. It's this picture of a bird hovering over its young suspending itself by the fluttering of wings, providing protection and care. Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, he, he writes a song, and in that song he uses the same word. And this is the, this is the way he, 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 he describes this word hover. In, in Deuteronomy 32, 11, Moses writes, Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carry them aloft. God's loving, protected, protecting, hovering image applies to our text today. God is hovering over the earth with love before he speaks creation into existence. Listen to this. I read this week. The beauty and symmetry 
the beauty and spiritual symmetry of the Bible's opening words become even clearer as we see the word spirit in Hebrew also means breath. God's creative breath hovered over the water, and on day one, his breath would come forth as speech, as word. Psalm 33, 6 makes this connection. Quote, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. The spirit is to God's word as breath is to speech. This verse ends with great expectation. As God hovers over a dark, lifeless lump with creation hope. I love watching artists do their thing. Whether it's a potter who's got a lump of clay and it's just this lifeless lump that when the creator puts its hands to it, he can make something beautiful and refined. My son Elijah, for some reason many years ago, he picked up the hobby of woodworking. It's not something I've done, but he picked it up, bought all the tools, and he's got this gorgeous shop in our garage. And he loves to make things, dovetail joints, furniture, whatever. And lately he's gotten into this, 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 the, this hobby of, of working with briar. Briar is a burlwood that grows in the Mediterranean. And Elijah has this briarwood shipped to the States. And he used to just sort of impose his creations onto the briar. But he's learned, he was just sharing with me the other day, he's like, Dad, I can't just kind of copy and paste what I want on the briar. I've got to look at the complexity of the wood. I gotta look at the wood grain. I gotta see how it's shaped. I gotta see its imperfections. And then I imagine how to take advantage of what's already there and create something beautiful from it. And I love watching what my son creates. It's beautiful. And I think about how God does that in our life. He doesn't just, he, God could, at any point in human history, God could have said, you know what? You guys are just too messy. Blank, done. He could have, he could have wiped the whole face of the earth off. He, he, could have, he could have blasted the whole universe to nothing and started again. But what he does is our God is a redemptive God. He redeems and restores things. He takes all the broken parts of our life. He takes the chaos of our childhood. He takes all these things and he begins to work them together. Our darkest secrets, our grossest failures, our greatest pains. And he molds it and shapes it and uses all those perfections to create something beautiful. From disorder, he brings order. From formlessness, he brings form. From lifelessness, he brings life. This is the gospel. How awesome is that? And you know that there's going to be a day when we stand in the presence of Jesus and when, 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 you know, we get these little droplets on our palate of God's redemptive hand at work. We get these little moments in our life where we see like a, a failure that God begins to redeem. Or we see these little moments where we're like, oh, God, only you could do that. But there's going to be a day when we stand in the presence of Jesus, or rather when we fall to our knees in his presence, when we're going to taste and experience to the fullness extent his redemptive work, perfectly and infinitely perfect, all things will be forever redeemed. And it will be very good. I just crave for that day. God was hovering over this uninhabitable place with creation, hope. And as we see the Spirit of God hovering over the darkness, we anticipate His words that will soon say, let there be light. And and as we imagine the Spirit of God hovering over over the disorder of the deep, we anticipate His words that will soon speak order into creation in the next few verses. When He says, let the waters be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. As we envision the Spirit of God hovering over the lifeless desolation, we anticipate His life-giving words that will soon say, let the earth bring forth living creatures. God alone does this. God alone brings form out of formlessness. God alone brings light into darkness. God alone brings life out of lifelessness. He alone sustains it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let that image of God hovering over the darkness with hope wash over you today. Because this world in which we live is difficult. It can be a desolate and dark place. It can be disordered. 
But darkness does not have the last word. When I think of darkness, I think of the crucifixion of Christ. I was reading in Matthew 27 this week. As Christ is hanging on the cross between two thieves, do you remember this? Between the sixth and the ninth hour? Do you remember this? If you look at Matthew 27, verse 45, now from the sixth hour there was darkness all over the land until the ninth. And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud, a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma shabachthani, which is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, as Christ was hanging on the cross, darkness overtook the land. I mean, the sun was literally turned black. And as the world was turned black around the cross, can you imagine how black the, the outlook was for the disciples, both physically, spiritually, and emotionally? Can you imagine how dark the darkness was in that moment for those who followed Jesus, who called him rabbi, who called him Messiah, who called him king? They had followed him for three years, and here they stand. The sun is blackened as he's hanging from a tree, and he's bleeding at us. Christ hovers above the darkness with nails in his hands and feet, and all things are dark. Mortal eyes would have only seen hopelessness in that situation. But as Christ hung from the cross, you and I now know for where we rest in salvation history— as he hovered with nails in his hands and feet above the darkness, there was hope. The darkness didn't have the final say at Calvary. The brilliant light of the gospel pierced the darkness when Christ overcame death, when he overcame sin. And the light of the gospel shines brightly today as a lamp on a stand, as a city on a hill, gives light to all. And one day the light of Christ will forever eclipse the darkness. One day there will be a new creation. We read in Revelation 22 that in this new creation, the night will be no more. There will be no need of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be the light, and they will reign forever and ever. Church, we're not yet in glory. There's difficult days. There's darkness. There's disorder. But one day we will be in glory. As you and I learn to live on this side of glory, I know that it can be tough sometimes. It can be chaotic and disordered, and there's days when it's dark. As we continue to struggle even with just the realities of our present situation, can I just speak honestly for a sec? Like, this is not how I wanted to start my second sermon at Heritage Christian Fellowship thinking about a, a, a freeze or a shutdown. I don't want to, I don't want to do it. I just, like, last week was awesome. Man, we gathered, we sang songs, a ton of familiar faces, there was great momentum, and then a couple days later we're told, oh, we got to shut things down, and there's this pandemic, and, and there's a reality, and there's people's lives that are in danger, and this is just the reality. Like, this is not how I wanted it to be, but as I, as I read the text this week, I mean, this is a puff of air. This little season we're in, this is a morning mist, it's nothing. It's nothing. In 15 minutes, we're going to be on the other side of this pandemic. So can I just like speak to you as, as the body of believers here at Heritage? Can I just say like, I'm the new guy, so I get, I get away with this for, for a few more weeks. Man, let's not do it, man. Let's not, let's not spiral into finger pointing. Let's not spiral into putting our hope in the wrong things. Let's not start shaking our fists and, and creating negativity and, and anger and frustration. Man, we have an opportunity to look at this God of hope who hovers above us. This God who hung on a cross to save and redeem us. This is our hope and our only hope. Amen? So we're going to go on a journey together. We're going to go on a journey together. I have no idea how long this is going to last. We're going to do everything we can to stay viable and connected and to worship together and to engage and make disciples and create community. We're going to work as hard as we can to make that work 
respecting as much as we can the, the authority God has placed over us, but we're going to work like, like crazy. I, you have my word. I'm going to work like crazy to try to make this church as, lively, as lively and as life-giving as possible. But I want us to go on a journey together. On Wednesday, the 18th, we're going to go into this freeze. I, I, I'm guessing it's going to last more than two weeks. That's just my guess. But can we go on a journey together? A 45-day journey. Will you do this with me? I was talking to the elders and some of the staff yesterday. I want us to put together a a 45-day journey where we can journey together in prayer as a church. We can journey together in our devotional lives as a church. We can journey together in growing and learning about what it means that God has made us His church for this time, for the Rogue Valley and beyond. We have these core values that have guided us as a church since we, we started 12 years ago. I want us as a church to engage together in a forward-thinking, equipping, hopeful vision for how God might use these next few days, next few weeks through the holidays to prepare us for what he has in 2021 and beyond. So I need you. I need you on board. You're going to get emails. You're going to get some information about how you can participate in this. We're still making it up as we go, but we're going to do it. And I'm excited about what it's gonna, how God might use this season to prepare us for what he's going to do in and through Heritage Christian Fellowship in the weeks, months, years, decades, centuries to come for his glory. Amen? Be watching for that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these people. Thank you for this season, God. We don't normally thank you when we're suffering or frustrated or angry. We don't naturally just say thanks in moments of disorder and difficulty. But God, as I reflect on the text today, as I imagine the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters, hovering over the darkness, God, I have hope. God, would you put that image into our mind? Would you help us be your hands, your feet, your disciples? God, give us eyes to see and, and hearts to respond in obedience, God, that we might walk as you would have us walk moving forward as a church. God, I thank you that we can look to the cross and we can see that Jesus, as the, as the son of the living God, you bore our sins. You overcame death in sin. You died in our place, Jesus. Amen. You deserve all of our worship. And God, you conquered sin and death. You're alive today, and you invite us to confess with our mouth that Jesus, you are Lord. Believe in our hearts, God, that you raised him from the dead, that we might be born again, that we might be in a new family, that our hope might not be on this side of glory, but our hope is in heaven. So God, by the power of your spirit, just give us that hope to lift our eyes today. When it gets a little dark, when it gets a little difficult, when it gets a little disordered, God, let us lift our eyes to see you. And God, would you do something powerful and awesome and beautiful and unifying through our church as we journey together in the season ahead for your glory. God, we love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name.